Hello again, it's Ken Drews, and you're listening to Ken Drews Real Dirt, The Garden Show. And today's show is for the birds, and I'm happy to be joined by one of our favorite bird guests, Jim McCormick. Stay tuned. Hello again. Every week we try to answer at least one question, and one question I have is about bird migration. The birds that I see, are they, are they just passing through? Are they staying around all winter? And what about bird feeders? Should I be feeding the birds? That's a question I always seem to ask myself. Uh, is it just for me? Is it just for my benefit? Well, we'll get that question answered today when we're joined by Jim McCormick, who is with the Ohio Division of Wildlife. And Jim has the great blog, jimmccormick.blogspot.com. Don't worry, you don't have to write it down. There'll be a link on the kendrewsrealdirt.com website, K-E-N-D-R-U-S-E-R-E-A-L-D-I-R-T, kendrewsrealdirt, all run together.com. That's where you can hear the show. You can also listen to the show on the Organic Gardening Magazine website. Birds don't migrate because they figure they need to. They do because there's changes in their body based on day length. It causes hormones to be produced, and it tells them it's time to fly south to find more food. And during their migration, they're going to be looking for food sources. They'll be stopping along the way, looking for berries and looking for insects to eat. And they want to find those food sources that are high in fat. And the fat is stored under their skin and gives them energy for their flying, for their flight. And it's very important that there are sources of fat. There's different kinds of berries and fruits that are that supply different things to birds at different times of year. And Jim McCormick, my guest today, is going to be telling you about that and a whole lot more. I'm speaking with Jim McCormick, who works for the Ohio Division of Wildlife. And Jim is a specialist on all animals, but I know that he's especially interested in birds. And can I say that birds are your favorites? Yeah, I would have to admit that. Birds are what got me interested in um, nature to begin with when I was just a little kid, about six years old. And by the way, it's a pleasure to talk with you again, Ken. Thank you so much. Well, I'm interested in birds, too, and I'm always, uh, when I have questions about birds, I always turn to you. <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> and I'm wondering about migration and things like that, because I'm, I'm thinking now the robins, are out in the garden pretty much year-round, but are those the same robins that I'm seeing in the winter that I saw in the summer? Probably not, in a nutshell, and you probably picked the best species to talk about migration in the winter, because robins are short-distance migrants. Everything migrates, that's important to note. So migration occurs in every month of the year. Some of it's a lot more conspicuous than others, like the return of big flocks of blackbirds in late February and March. Uh, other migrations a lot more subtle, like cardinals are probably the least migratory, but they do move locally. Uh, it may only be over a couple blocks to another for source of food. But everything's migrating. But robins, it's really obvious because robins are considered an age-old harbinger of spring. Okay, so the return of the robin and their singing and April is, March is, you know, much heralded by people, but that's really changed a lot. So there's a lot, basically there's a lot more robins around in the winter than there used to be, and it's a shift. You could just think of a sheet of robins blanketing eastern North America, and come cold weather, they just shift 
southward. So you're New Jersey Robins, they may end up in um, Tennessee or somewhere like that. Here in Ohio, we probably get a lot of Canadians coming in, you know, in the wintertime where ours are now several states to the south. Oh, so the Robins that I'm seeing now are, are most likely from Canada. Probably so, or points north, maybe the New England states, uh, where yours are a little bit farther south. One thing that's interesting with robins, there's a number of subspecies, and in a place like New Jersey or even here in Ohio, one to really watch for in the wintertime are really black ones, okay? Most male robins that breed around here are gray on the top, as we all know, rufous below. But there's a Canadian subspecies that's really black, and if you see one, it's, um, it's going to be a male, and it's going to really just look strikingly black and orange, that's definitely a uh, northern one from Canada, probably, that's come down. Well, you, you said that all, uh, you said all animals migrate. Now, do you mean all birds, or do you mean pretty much all animals? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, birds. Birds, <laughs> yeah. Lots of other animals migrate, too, but I, yeah, mm -hmm. I meant birds. All birds uh, around here, at least, migrate to some degree. It may be small, it may be large, but um, the uh, <clears throat> robins that you uh, are, are just a wonderful example. As a matter of fact, we've had several stories around here lately on them because people generally, the big question, there's two big questions with those in the winter. Why are they still here, and why am I seeing such big flocks of them? Hmm. Uh, where it wasn't that way 20 years ago. Well, why do you think that is? Uh, plants, your favorite subject, you know, and it really segues into bird feeding. Um, in a way, robins don't visit bird feeders, except rarely if you put some fruit out maybe or something. That's not what's keeping them here. It's the uh, proliferation of non-native plants. It's doing it, especially honeysuckles. Other things as well. Uh, ornamental crab apples, any fruit-bearing trees. And most of the, the heavy hitters in the fruit-bearing tree world these days that are escaped to, uh, to the wild are non-native. And in my neck of the woods, it's honeysuckle. They proliferate, several species of them, all non-native Asian things, but they uh, produce copious fruit. Um, and that's what's keeping these robins north. Mm. Well, I, I almost always think of the non-natives, the exotic invasive plants as being bad and I wonder if there are some bad things about these plants being around and the birds changing their migratory patterns as you said in 20 in the last 20 years totally and it's insidious and it's only starting to come out some of the ramifications of uh, honeysuckle crops luring birds to stay well north of where they would have been historically when these non-natives weren't on the landscape uh, the big problem with it are honeysuckle crops, the fruit are really, really low in lipids and proteins. These are the things that help a bird really build up fat and survive uh, extended bad weather periods. So what we've seen here and others have seen elsewhere is robins, as long as the winter stays fairly mild, they'll get by on these honeysuckle crops. When there's an extended cold snap, especially coupled with ice, that locks in their food supply or locks them out of the food supply for a, a couple days, they really suffer. They don't have the fat deposits built up from this honeysuckle crop to endure um, a period of fasting. Um, and, and then that's when we see a lot of mortality, and we have seen that several, several times here in Columbus, uh, and, and it's been seen in many other places as well. 
Well, you mentioned blackbirds and you mentioned mortality, and those two things together make me have to ask you if you have any idea of what happened to the red-winged blackbirds in Arkansas recently. Uh, yeah, I think so. That, of course, has been um, has gone totally viral over the internet, and everyone's heard of that case in Arkansas, where okay, five yeah, thousand. Go ahead, remind us. <laughs> yeah, five thousand blackbirds in a place called I think it's called Beeb, Arkansas, were uh, just rained to the ground, literally, you know, shocking mm. people out at night, celebrating the new year. It was on New Year's um, Eve, you know. And, and that's understandable. It's like shades of Hitchcock's The Birds or something yeah. coming back or, or global Armageddon or whatever with these birds raining from the sky. But probably the cause is, is a lot less um, frightening than that. It's still not a good thing. But what apparently happened was uh, ultra-loud fireworks were set off in the vicinity of a roost site, and blackbirds in the winter roost communally in huge numbers. Uh, and... This spooked these blackbirds, which don't fly at night normally, up into the air in a panic, and they collided with objects left and right. And uh, the um, autopsies on the birds indicated that um, blunt uh, trauma was a big leading cause of death, which ties in with them hitting objects because they don't see very well at night. <laughs> so that's essentially what happened. Okay, the next question everyone has, well, why all these other cases? Because after that, cases started to be reported far and wide of, of similar events. And in most cases, what that is, is it's just a matter of awareness. The media created a really high-profile case with the Arkansas example, and then um, that spawned lots of other reports that normally wouldn't have been reported, probably, because mortality like that happens um, on a regular basis. We usually don't hear about it or even aren't aware of it because it happens in some remote area or whatever. That's right. Uh, yeah, I I see. The, something else you mentioned a while back were the robins that uh, we might notice have a darker color on the top, almost black, and that made me think of crows, because uh, I I always think it's interesting to see the I guess they're the European magpies are black and white sometimes, and then I've started to notice that some crows have white feathers. Have you ever seen that? Um, only on uh, leucistic examples. Uh, leucism is a, a genetic anomaly that causes normally darkened pigments to be pale or white, and often the term for that uh, layman term is piebald uh, deer. Uh, piebald deer become locally famous, and sometimes birds do as well because they share this striking white and black coloration. But it's um, uh, that's the only instance I've ever seen that with crows, and I have seen that before. But uh, it's that genetic condition that causes it. Well, I was very surprised to see a black crow with a white feather. It was like one white feather, and quite recently. Yeah, it can either be like one white feather or very, very small and localized, or the, virtually the whole bird can be um, white. Most white animals, uh, especially birds, aren't really albinos. They get called that, but they're leucistic, because a true albino bird really doesn't have a, a strong likelihood of getting out of the nest and surviving, because... As a byproduct of that condition, it, it weakens their feather shafts tremendously and some other things that aren't good for your long-term survival. Uh, and I guess eye color and eye problems, too. Yeah, right, a whole host of issues with it. Um, but one of the things that's cool about winter birds, that uh, if, if people are bold enough to get out in these cold temperatures, 
snow and wander around is the amazing survival strategies of, of birds, you know. I think any of us that have spent a lot of time outdoors over the years uh, in cold climates like we've got uh, can't help but to marvel at how these things get by. We walk out and we're dressed to the nines in layers and all this, and we have a warm retreat to go to if we want to, whether it's our car or home. These animals don't have that. Birds don't have that. And when the temperatures plummet into the teens or even below zero at night, and the nights are long in the winter, you just you got to wonder how these things survive, but they do. I'm speaking with Jim McCormick, who works for the Ohio Division of Wildlife, and we'll be right back. Hello, and thank you for staying with me. It's Ken Drews, and you're listening to Ken Drews Real Dirt, The Garden Show. We're talking about birds. We're talking about migration. My guest is Jim McCormick, who works for the division, Ohio Division of Wildlife. And, yeah, we were just talking about birds and temperatures, and I know I've got a down comforter on my bed, so I can guess how the birds get by. I w- actually, I wonder how their little feet stay warm. <laughs> yeah, well, they have cold feet. There's no question about it, but they're they're designed that way. They, um, in essence, minimize the blood flow into the extremities that are exposed, which are their feet and legs. And uh, they probably maintain a temperature barely above the mark of freezing water. Wow. So they literally are cold feet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what's more amazing, and so that's how they evolved that, you know, keeping those extremities um, from falling off in the cold. But What's really amazing about them are their feathers. You know, birds have three kinds of feathers, wing and tail feathers for flight, contour feathers, which essentially serve as a parasol or parasol or coating over the bird, the outer feathers. But under that are these down feathers. And the insulating qualities of down feathers are really well known. As a matter of fact, eiderdown at one time was a really, really coveted source of insulation for people in sleeping bags and coats, things like that. So that's how they do it, this, these wonderful little down feathers that they can puff up and create these insulating air uh, layers against the skin and really do an amazing job of surviving the elements. Well, you mentioned cardinals, and I, I look at the sparrows too, and there are a couple of species, I imagine, that don't travel too far, like you were talking about. But I'm, I'm curious about our place uh, in all of this, humans, because you mentioned that the alien species are tricking the birds into staying around, and it is a bit of a danger. Are there any drawbacks to feeding birds in the winter? Uh, In general, I would say very few. Okay, there was an article that came out on that subject back in 2002, and it was in the Wall Street Journal, which, of course, a lot of people read and get their information from, and it was basically on the ill effects of feeding birds, and that, that got a lot of people in a flutter, I guess, over, <laughs> over, over whether this is a good thing or not. And in general, birds um, adapt very well to the environment. Your feeders are an easy source. They're opportunistic. So if you put out food, they're going to discover it, and they're going to utilize it. One thing that almost everyone that feeds birds, even in the winter, notices is they disappear for extended periods. And they tend to do that when native food crops are, are available. They still prefer those. And if you cut off the food to the birds, they're going to adapt really quickly. If they're somewhat migratory, they're going to go 
farther south or whatever to where food might be available, or they're going to wander locally and rediscover food. Um, the feeders themselves probably do not really entice birds to uh, stay north or you know out of the range they'd normally be. Well, you're talking about the uh, honeysuckle, the invasive exotic honeysuckles, and how they don't supply all the things that the birds really should have at this time of year. What should we be feeding them? If we do put out feeders, uh, are there special things? I guess the the fats might be important now. Yeah, yeah, just basically uh, um, sunflower seeds tend to be really high in the sort of things that they like. Uh, thistle feed is a wonderful thing, and of course some of it just depends on the birds that you want to attract if you want to fine-tune it, like goldfinches and red pools and pine siskins go for tubular feeders that dispense small niger thistle feed and things like that uh, where the larger birds and cardinals and jays and whatnot they'll go for the bigger seeds like sunflower uh, the companies that make seed now have really got this down to an art form almost in a you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be pretty okay buying whatever's out there on the market, probably. Although what I gotta the, confess, I don't really feed birds myself. <laughs> I'm not, not an authority on what to go get. Well, I'm gonna ask you another question though. Um, what about suet? Suet feeders? Yeah, suet's good. You know, suet uh, uh, mimics uh, insects and animal life that woodpeckers and things like that would find out in in the wild in a. If that's more of a woodpecker thing, although I would caution, at least at my parents' house, where they feed suet to the birds, and um, the house sparrows, <laughs> which are not native, have, have learned how to uh, tap into the suet feeder, which hangs upside down. Uh, for a long time, they couldn't get at it because of the physical way the suet was located, and they've mastered that, and now they get on there, too. Uh, which most people don't really covet having house sparrows around, but for the most part, the woodpeckers still use it, and, and it's it's great. You know, it's a good way to lure these things in. One of the real benefits of feeding is that it really brings birds to people who would not normally see these birds like that, and so it really increases an appreciation of nature and birds, and, and hopefully fosters a, a desire to protect them. And that's so important. And I know with the suet feeder, a big problem is squirrels, but friends of mine got a suet feeder that suet's mixed with red pepper, and the squirrels hate it, but <laughs> most birds don't don't uh, react to pepper, to red pepper, uh, as you know. I mean, they, they eat a lot of things that we couldn't possibly eat, <laughs> hot peppers. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's true. Now, squirrels are a whole other issue. We'd have a whole other program on those. So. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I would just say I would leave that. I would view that as a, a, a battle of your intelligence against an animal. Yeah. And if you can defeat the thing with some clever way to keep them off the feeder, more power to you. Uh, a lot of uh, birds that we see now are passing through. You know, we might see them for a couple of days. As you said, they're looking for another source of food. What are some of the birds in, well, in this time of year, January, early February, in cold climates that you might hope to see? Uh, one of my favorites and a wonderful example of a winter bird to go look for is a little sprite called a golden crown kinglet. Okay, golden crown kinglets are six grams. It's about the weight of two nickels. Wow. Not much larger than a hummingbird. It's the world's, well, at least our smallest songbird. And they are tough as nails. They breed in the boreal forest across Canada up in the spruce fir zone. And 
they come down to our latitude to spend the winter, and they do not come to feeders. You're never going to see one at your feeder, uh, except maybe rarely picking at the sewer. But they, they don't they don't go to feeders. So you got to go out, especially around conifers like spruces in a cemetery or ornamental conifers, and they'll be in the conifers if they're available. And they live on insects. And this just amazes me because in the wintertime, you don't think of insects. Right. And a wonderful biologist uh, named um, Bernd Heinrich really exposed the life of the kinglet in the wintertime. And it turns out there's a lot of uh, moth larvae, geometric moth caterpillars, little moths that flutter around your life. But it's one of those species. And their caterpillars actually silk themselves to branches and they're tiny in the wintertime and they're out there on the branches and that's what the kinglets specialize in in many areas is finding this these insects that are still alive uh, in the wintertime and provide fuel for these wonderful little birds. Well, you're talking about a little bird and we only have about a minute left, but aren't you taking a trip to see raptors in the near future? Yeah, that's the other extreme. We're going to go look for golden eagles and rough-legged hawks, short-eared owls, things like that. And that's at a huge reclaimed strip mine here in Ohio called The Wilds. And it's like being out on the African savanna and full of meadow voles in the grass. And that's what these, these wintering raptors have come down from the north to spend the winter and feed on. It's really a, an interesting excursion. Uh, well, we we don't see enough raptors, and it's great to be able to take a trip. Are you going to take a, a group out there? Yeah, this is the uh, Ornithological Society, the Ohio Ornithological Society's annual winter raptor fest over at the wilds, and we have 150 <laughs> people. Whoa. <laughs> Every year we get 150. One year it was 17 below zero over there, and we still, most of them showed up. You know, we had some cancellations, but... Uh, it's just really popular, you know, a good way to get out and look at some big birds in the wintertime. Well, I hope they all have their eider-down jackets <laughs> <laughs> and, and boots and keep as warm as they can. And, Jim, I can't thank you enough again for being my guest. It's a, I always learn so much, and we could go on talking for hours, so we'll have to talk again soon, and, and uh, I want to thank you again. I hope we talk soon, Ken. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. Well, I always do learn a lot from Jim, and something I learned today, something I never thought about. I mean, we've been talking on the show over and over again about how important it is to have local foods, to have native plants that co-evolved with the native wildlife so that birds can find the food that they're used to and and the other animals can too. And I, I think about the problems when you have exotic plants and how those may not provide the foods that are used by the birds, but something I didn't think about that Jim brought up today is that some of these exotic plants are actually attracting the birds and over the last 20 years are keeping birds in certain areas, like the robins. He mentioned that the robins usually were the first sign of spring because they would arrive and there you'd see them, but now they don't, they don't go away. Actually, they do because the ones we're looking at are ones that migrated down from Canada. So they do go away and come back, but we're seeing robins through the year because the robins are coming to eat the fruits that are on exotic plants. And he mentioned honeysuckle in his area, and he's talking about the the shrub or bush honeysuckles that are from Asia, and and those plants produce berries that are red or orange or dark yellow, and they do attract the birds. 
And the birds eat them, but they don't always give the birds the things that they need. For example, I was talking earlier about the fats that are so important for energy and to keep birds warm. And he talked about how some of those foods that the birds are sticking around to eat or coming down from Canada to eat aren't giving them the nutrition and the, the ingredients that they need, and they can die. They can freeze because they don't have the right kinds of food, something you don't even think about. So there's a problem with the exotic plants. If you look around any area where there's Bradford pears or the calorie pears, you know, they're supposed to be sterile. When they first came out, they were said that they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, form any fruit, but they do form, form fruit. Birds do eat the fruit, and you can tell that because you can see the, especially in the fall, you can see the color of the leaves of those Bradford pears that have escaped into the wild, and they, they're they lining the highway here in, in north, the northwest corner of New Jersey. I see them all over the place. The pears, especially crab apples. We have native crab apples, but these are not the native crab apples. The birds eat them, poop out the seeds, plants come up, birds eat those fruits again. Something to think about. See you next week on Kendra's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. <laughs>